0: are listening to the Historical Bookworm Show for lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction. Join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews.
1: Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Today's guest says she hears voices loud, incessant, and very real, which basically gives her two options choke back massive amounts of Prozac or write fiction. She's been writing since she discovered blank wall space and crayons. She seeks to glorify God in all that she writes, except for the graffiti phase she went through as a teenager. She is the Christie Award winning author of historical romances, but also leaped the historical fence into the realm of contemporary with a zany romance mystery out of the frying pan. Michelle Greep, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Hey,
2: thank you. Thank you for having me back again.
0: We are so excited to have you back. You joined us in February of 2020 to talk about your book, The Thief of Blackfriars Lane. But before we dive into a discussion of its sequel, let's start with something fun. As a writer, what would you choose as your mascot or spirit animal? Well, I can tell
2: you what it wouldn't be. It would not be an armadillo because currently I am fighting the battle of the century against this pesky animal. He has been digging up my gardens. I'm so angry, but that's off topic. So (laughs) Um, (laughs) sorry, I'm just, I have a little bit of rage about that thing. (laughs) Um, So let's see, what would I choose? I think I would go with a hummingbird because hummingbirds love flowers like I do. They can be somewhat elusive, which I always strive to be. And you just never know when they're going to show up, which I do have a bad habit of being late to things. I'm going to go with a hummingbird. Oh, I love it. (laughs) And those are like
0: the best reasons for choosing it. That's hilarious. I love it. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I think Karen Barnett put something out once to describe what kind of writer, like it was like a poll or something fun on social media. And I remember there was like a buffalo just steadily like pounds through and gets through. (laughs) But when you were talking about the armadillo, I was like, how fast is, well, first I was like, I don't know why, but the sloth from Zootopia like, popped in my head, and I was like, no, that's not an armadillo. <laughs> no, I can tell you, they, if you hit him in the butt with a pellet
2: gun, they move really fast, really fast. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. He from experience on that one. I thought that would scare him away. Oh, no, he was back again last night. Oh, so, no. Yeah. What a stinker. I'm so mad at him.
0: My granddad had a garden and he had groundhogs that he fought like every year until finally he got a little dog who would run them off. And that yes. that was finally the thing that was successful for him. I don't know what you do for an armadillo though.
2: We have an a indoor dog. She's a boxer and she's a diva. So she would not even want to go out at night. But I think I want an outdoor dog. So I'm thinking a Great Pyrenees is the dog for me.
0: Oh, oh yeah.
1: Yeah. We see those a lot up here in Oregon with the different sheep herds, yes. and they are just beautiful. They're beautiful, and they're
2: fantastic livestock dogs. So I'm thinking, maybe I just need to get a dog.
0: Yeah, yeah. That always solves a problem. Just get a dog.
2: Yeah, totally. <laughs> Pelican's not working, so I need to do something different here. Yeah.
1: Now, on your website, you mentioned that you're an Anglophile. What do you think draws you to all things Great Britain? You know,
2: I have pondered that question many times and I have come up with absolutely no answer whatsoever. <laughs> whatsoever. I'm thinking maybe it's just in my blood, despite all my Viking genes, because my mom was full blooded Norwegian. I do, my dad, on my dad's side, I do have some English blood in me. So. It's either that or it's the cream teas because I cannot leave a scone alone. So it must, it's got to be that.
0: Now, you also mentioned on your website that you prefer Charlotte Bronte to Jane Austen. So you just more of the mystery angle, the drama is what draws you or what is it that?
2: I am, I'm always a shade darker in my tastes. And so I think that the melancholy of Charlotte Bronte suits me more then Jane Austen, who's oh, let's go to another dinner party. I would prefer the mystery and the mysterious Mister Rochester. And when I was in England, I actually went and visited the house that Charlotte Bronte visited, that inspired her to write Jane Eyre. So there was this creepy little staircase. You couldn't go up it. at this point in time. You can't go up it, but you there was this little creepy staircase that went upstairs to this attic room, and it says, "Wow." That's so inspiring. So I can see why she wanted to write that book. But Oh,
0: that is so cool. A lot of those houses in England have just been there for so long that they've got secrets. But that's cool that there was a particular house that inspired her. Yes. Yes. Very awesome. Talking of secrets, in your books, do you hide any secrets that only a few people will find? Absolutely. I love
2: Easter eggs. I love them. And a lot of them are my kids, if they would ever read my books, some of them do, but some don't. I always hide things in there for them. But for general readers, I hide things too. For instance, in my next release that is called Man of Shadow and Mist, it's rumored that the hero is a vampire. All the names, all not all the names, but as many as I could possibly manage, come directly from Bram Stoker's Dracula. And some are even place names in Transylvania. So I had fun naming the characters. So those are a ton of Easter eggs for Stoker aficionados to discover them all.
0: Oh, that is so much fun. See, I love it when authors do that. It's, yeah, it's just that that little private joke between you two that is just so much fun, you know? Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, that is fun.
1: Yeah. And it's really wonderful to see like bits and pieces of a book that you love in a book that's new to you. Because like when you finish Jamie Jo Wright, she did something probably not similar, but she used different things from Lord of the Rings in her book. Oh, I don't remember. It was the one with the lake. Something The Souls of Lost Lake. So as a Lord of the Rings fan, I was like, oh, oh, that's so neat. I just felt even more connected with the book and with the character. So that's really interesting. That's really cool that you're going to do that. I
2: love to do that. So, yeah, there's always something in there that you'll find. If you look hard enough. Yes. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something God's laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers?
2: Well, I guess the thing that I appreciate most about fiction and about God is that both open our eyes to the way things could be. Like fiction presents possibility, It plants seeds in your imagination, and it expands your mind, if you will. And God has done that for me so many times on my faith journey. Just when I think I know how things are going to work out or how something should turn out, then you know what? He goes and blows my supposed knowledge to bits. So as much as I'd like to make this world out to being black and white, I think it's important we remember that it's God who created the rainbow, And I just find that the older I get, the less that I know. We can become so highly educated, but really, what do we know? So I guess that's something that's never been covered in an interview.
0: I like that because, I don't know, sometimes you get stuck in your little ruts, reading the same things or just doing the same things. And then maybe you run across a passage in the Bible or you watch God work out a situation in your life and it does blow your mind. And I like to say that if God didn't blow our minds, if there wasn't stuff that we couldn't comprehend, then he wouldn't really be worth worshiping anyway. So, right? yeah, I had an experience, actually, it wasn't recently per se, but I was listening to a sermon and the pastor's preaching straight out of the Bible and he totally blew up a preconceived doctrine that I had always had. And I was like, oh, wow, it's just amazing when God does that.
2: Yeah, I know. I love that. I love it when he does that. It's not always comfortable, but (laughs) you know what? Afterwards, you go, oh, wow, that's mind blowing. So, yeah.
1: And if we ever reach a point where we really feel comfortable or like we're the authority on an issue, I know personally, I'm like, it's hard to be an authority on any issue right now with technology and all of the (laughs) research we can do into these different things. But maybe I need to expand my horizon. So I love that we have times and seasons of kind of peace and relaxation, but being comfortable, I'm like, am I challenging myself really in life? Right, exactly.
2: Yeah, things are not always as black and white as we to make them out to be.
0: Yeah. Well, let's dive into talking about your latest release, The Bride of Blackfriars Lane. Detective Jackson Forge can hardly wait to marry the street sly swindler who's turned his life upside down. Kit Turner is equally excited to wed the handsome detective, and what better way to show her love than providing him with a gift any man of the law would love? She determines to bring to justice the men who years ago maimed his brother, despite Jackson's warning to leave the past in the past. As she digs into the mystery of what happened, she unwittingly tumbles into her own history and endangers her future happiness with Jackson.
1: So this book gives us another adventure with the characters. From the first novel in the series, The Thief of Black Friars Lane. Did you know when you wrote the first book with Jackson and Kit that their adventures would continue to a book two?
2: I no. No, not at all. I had no idea. Not until my first hint was when I finished the manuscript and I ran it past a few of my early readers and critique buddies. And they're like, oh, you're not done. We're not done. We need more. So I didn't know I was going to write another one. But then when I finally turned it into my editor, she's like, oh, yeah, we need to do another one. So I only had one intended adventure for them. But I guess Jackson and Kit and my readers had other things in mind. So surprise.
0: Gotta (laughs) love those readers. Give us more. Give us more.
2: I know.
1: Yeah, And I love that we're finding out a little bit more about Jackson's brother, because in reading the first book, those scenes with where he was thinking about his brother, and maybe, and there, you could just feel how heavy his heart was. And the first book ended wonderfully, but I just love that we're visiting that again. And I really hope he gets some justice and some clarity on that.
2: Yeah, I don't know, because there is going to be a third book, but I have no idea what's going to happen in that one. So I'm just in brainstorming mode right now.
0: I love it. I don't know. A lot of times I fall in love with characters and I'm like, I want to see what happens after the happy for now or whatever. And so seldom do you actually get to see that. So I think this is super cool.
2: Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad you're excited. (laughs) It'll be fun. I love writing these two. They're so sassy and at odds with each other, which is so like real life. And I think it'll be fun to write.
0: Oh, yeah. So while researching for this book, did you run across some interesting or surprising tidbits about the Victorian era? I feel like with a detective and a street sly girl, there, there's going to be a little bit, I don't know. I feel like you had to run across some pretty interesting stuff during research.
2: I, well, that's what I love doing research. And I love finding little tidbits and bringing them to life and story. And even in the opening scene, I've got Kit and Jackson working undercover in a dust yard I'd never even heard of that term before. I had no idea what a dust yard was until I was wasting time watching YouTube one day. And I came across this video called Surviving a Day in the Victorian Era, which it's a reality show. It's only four episodes, I think. But it took modern day people and put them into a 19th century simulation of what life would have been like. And the very first experience they had was working in a dust yard. So just so you guys know, or listeners can know, dust contractors were responsible for dust collection and sweeping the streets. And you're like, okay, why do these people have so much dust? What's going on? I know my house is dirty, but (laughs) I don't need a dust collector to come and get it. Well, think about how they heated their homes. They used a lot of coal. There was a lot of ash. So they would collect the ash, which created dust. And they established dust yards for not just that, but for also all the things that they swept up off the street. So essentially these were early recycling facilities where they would separate materials and then sell them to, to other people. So I thought, hey, what a great place to hide something that was stolen. So that's where the whole idea for the first scene came from, was from me wasting time on YouTube one day.
1: Well, that's really neat. I am honestly just Googled that, and I am definitely going to watch that. We're done recording.
2: It's really fun. There's, like I say, I think there's four Four in the series and is very interesting.
1: Oh, neat! Yeah, we'll put that in the dustyard link. Okay, yeah, we'll put that in in the show notes too. If anyone wants to watch Surviving a Day in Vic- the Victorian Era, we'll have that there at the bottom.
2: That'll give you a good visual of what a dustyard was like.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. in preparation for reading the first scene of the book, right? There you go. There you go. That's actually <laughs> really cool that they did like a recycling facility because. You read about how in the big cities, like during the Middle Ages and even coming out of them, they there was always this problem with trash and waste and get, getting rid of this in a way that doesn't pollute the river and pollute the fields and stuff like that. Yeah, you don't think about all the coal that they burned and how much dust and ashes that would generate, but that's very fascinating. Yeah, it's very cool.
2: Yeah, that was a fun little tidbit.
0: Yes. So... Jackson and Kit are fun characters, but I feel like it's always a secondary character in the story that is going to steal your heart, too. So who is your favorite secondary character in this book?
2: Well, I have a lot of favorites, but the one that really stole the show, and I think early readers would agree with this, is that it's Jackson's brother, James. He's the one that steals the show. As a teen, he suffered a severe head injury and has never been the same since, And though he's a giant of a man, his mentality is that of a child. And it's just, he's just endearing to, to the reader, to me. I think it's important to create characters that are outside the norm and cast a positive light on those who struggle with very real physical or mental impairments. And so he's, he, James is my character that does that. So that even if you suffer with a mental or physical disability or impairment, you're still valuable. James plays an integral part in a particular scene. I don't want to give too much away, but he saves the day. Yeah, he's, he was valuable and sweet. A gentle giant.
1: Yeah, I love that when you have a, a character that or maybe a personality type that we as a society tend to take for granted or maybe underestimate their capability and they shine through in some heroic way. That's really beautiful.
0: Yeah.
2: He was really fun to write. I had a good time with him. Mm -hmm. I feel
0: like in our society, we have such a tendency to just manage not to expose ourselves to people who are different from us, whether it's a physical or mental disability, or honestly, if it's even just people who believe differently from us. So I like that. You've brought in this character that maybe represents a lot of people that a lot of us haven't met and open our eyes a little bit. Right. Yeah. So,
1: what is up next on your writing schedule, so to speak?
2: Okay. Well, as I mentioned, I just, I think I mentioned it. Maybe I didn't. But I just turned in a manuscript that is the second book in my Of Monsters and Men series. And this story features author Bram Stoker. And the hero is a rumored vampire. Of course, he's not. How many of us deal with wrong perceptions of who we really are and wrong perceptions of who people think we are? So the book's called Man of Shadow and Mist, and that will release next June. And with that one finished, I am now on to brainstorming a third and final adventure, as I mentioned, for Kit and Jackson. So you will have to stay tuned for that one, because honestly, I have no idea what kind of shenanigans they're going to get into. But they will definitely turn London upside down, as they usually do.
0: They can't help themselves. I know.
2: Mm -hmm. I know. So it'll be another zany adventure with those two.
1: Oh, fine. Well, for our listeners, Michelle has been so gracious. She's offering a giveaway of the Bride of Blackfriars Lane to enter to win. You can actually find the link in our show notes or just go to our website, historicalbookworm.com and click on the giveaway tabs. And Michelle, how can our listeners learn more about you?
2: Well, I am all over social media. So you can find me pretty much anywhere, but I do have a website. So you can visit michellegreep.com where you can read about more about me and my books and you can sign up for my blog, which I like to feature. Usually on Fridays, I'll feature a different fiction book that I've been reading just to share the book love around. And you can also sign up for my newsletter and that's where i send out news of i'll do a cover reveal or right before a book launches i'll send something out but i will not bombard you with emails because honestly i just don't have the time for that so you'll get maybe 3 newsletters a year that's probably about all i manage 3 maybe possibly 4 but otherwise i'm on i'm on pinterest i'm on spotify i i love to Make I actually make a playlist for each of my books when I'm writing. I listen to music to inspire me as I'm writing. So there is a Bride of Blackfriars Lane Spotify playlist, if you're interested. And on Pinterest, there's also a storyboard if you want to know what I think the characters look like. Or interesting historical tidbits are definitely on there. I'm also on Instagram. So I like to post things, more, some book things, and then some things about my crazy hippie homesteading life that I'm doing, trying to do. And maybe I'll have a picture of an armadillo. You never know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been a delight chatting with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing about your. Thank you, Darcy and Kylie.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I love being here. It's so easy to talk to you guys.
1: And now a message from American Christian fiction writers, public relations, liaison, Cynthia Rookti. Created with Christian Fiction Reader fans in mind, the 2022 ACFW StoryFest. Come be part of our inaugural year of hosting ACFW StoryFest, formerly the Christian Fiction Readers Retreat. It takes place Thursday, September 8, 2022, in the afternoon through Saturday, September tenth, at the Hyatt Regency at the Arch in St. Louis, Missouri. Come celebrate story and your favorite Christian fiction authors right on the premises of the ACFW conference, where hundreds of Christian fiction authors gather each year. You can learn more about StoryFest at www.acfwstoryfest.com. Hope to see you there.
0: Now for A Pinch of the Past. Today, we are looking into part two of our story of the St. Augustine Lighthouse. Last time, we talked about how the Spanish and the British had used watchtowers and lighthouses on Anastasia Island. And the U.S., when they took control, built a 40-foot lighthouse and finally installed a beautiful fourth-order frontal lens. By 1871, however, rising sea levels made it clear that the lighthouse tower, which had stood for 130 years, was eventually going to be washed away. So, a new 165-foot lighthouse was built further back from the water. It was completed in three years in 1874. It housed a beautiful first-order frontal lens, which was the biggest lens available, and it shone three fixed flashes 19 to 24 nautical miles out to sea, depending on atmospheric conditions.
1: Oh, wow. Wow. That's much further. Thank
0: goodness. I know. I know. It's like, finally, you can help it. The interesting thing about where they placed the lighthouse is there were sandbars in front of the inlet that led into St. Augustine that were very treacherous. So many ships got stuck on these sandbars. A large keeper's house was built near the base of the lighthouse. The head lighthouse keeper and the first assistant each had two rooms downstairs and two rooms upstairs for their family use. But the second assistant, he had one room upstairs. It straddled the entrance hall that was downstairs. He could be married, but he only had one room. So, Yeah,
1: definitely in the assistant yes. level responsibility and pay.
0: Right. Young guy moving in, learning the ropes, that kind of deal. Now, the house featured no indoor kitchens due to heat, it's Florida, and, of course, fire hazards, so instead they have two outdoor kitchens flanking the house in the back. It also has a basement, which is unusual for Florida, but they built it on a high-ish point for Florida, and so it had a basement with cisterns for rainwater and storage.
1: Wow. That sounds really neat. And I like the idea of the outside Mm -hmm. kitchen. I know when we lived in Texas, sometimes it was so hot. I would do anything (laughs) to not
0: (laughs) cook. It's like, (laughs) I'll grill, I'll do... Well, no, because then you'd be outside. sandwiches. Yeah. Sandwiches, (laughs) salad, that's it. Yeah. I thought it was cool that they did two kitchens as well so that Headlight Housekeeper and the first assistant, their families each had their own separate kitchen. They didn't have to worry about sharing or anything.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I would definitely want my own kitchen if I was there. (laughs) I know.
0: Do you remember in Anne of Green Gables where Marilla is talking about her friend, Mrs. Lind, moving in and she says, we'll get along fine as long as we restore that back kitchen for her to use? Because the problem when two women live together is when they share their kitchen. (laughs) It was so funny. Marilla
1: usually knew what she was talking about. (laughs) She
0: did usually know what she was talking about, so... The lighthouse keeper's duties, of course, the first one was to keep the light shining all night. They climbed every two and a half hours to refuel the lamp and wind the mechanism that turned that massive lens.
1: Oh, goodness. That's like keeping up with a baby, a newborn, every two hours.
0: They took shifts. And if you look at their log of everything that was done on the lighthouse, most of the time, it's just like, okay, at such and such time, the first assistant took over at such and such time, second assistant took over. But there was one section where it said the light was out for about two hours one night, like between maybe 1.30 and 3.30 or something like that. And the note says, second assistant stated that he was overcome by sleep. Oh no! Could you imagine waking
1: up to that? Like, I wake up and miss my alarm and I'm like pulling out my hair trying to get ready, but to not have the light? I know, to wake up and go, oh my gosh, I let
0: the light go out! Yeah. It, it didn't say that anything happened, he just probably got a good talking to and I guess he made stronger coffee the next night.
3: <laughs>
1: I imagine he did.
0: <laughs> So the lighthouse keepers were responsible for maintaining the structure and actually they even tended the navigational buoys offshore. There was one lighthouse keeper whose daughter would actually go with him to help take care of the buoys, make sure everything was in order.
1: Oh, wow. Boy, this, I really am starting to want to just go and read some books that have lighthouses in them. Actually, I think Jody Hedlund has a, a series with lighthouses. She now does. That I think about she it.
0: does. If this leaves you hankering for lighthouses, go look up her books. Actually, the lighthouse keeper's families were respected members of the community. And in St. Augustine, they often entertained the rich tourists who would come across the bay by cart or by rowboat to visit the lighthouse. They would maybe sing or read poetry or play the piano and serve lemonade and tea. Oh, how nice. I know. It just, it sounds so cool. But it was interesting to me, older children had to know how to tend the light in case some emergency incapacitated all the keepers. Oh, wow. I know. Well,
3: that's
0: nice. Yeah, you think about it. I don't know how old, but maybe by the time they were 12 or 13, they would know how to tin the light and take care of it just in case something happened they had three keepers but older children still had to know wow now two women actually served as keepers at the saint augustine lighthouse both actually after they were widowed maria and husband fell to his death while painting the lighthouse in 1859 and she took over for him Yes, I know it is. And then 30 years later in 1889, a second assistant keeper died of tuberculosis and his wife, Kate Harn, stayed on in his place. Oh, that's nice. It is. It is. It's cool that they probably knew as much as their husbands. So why not?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I imagine if they were training kids that the wives would definitely know. That that. the wives (laughs)
0: would definitely know what they were doing. Exactly. So five years after the lighthouse lamp was converted to electricity in 1936, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and a coastal lookout building was constructed at the St. Augustine Light Station. It didn't really receive that much attention, but it was built. And then in April of 1942, a German submarine sank a U.S. ship off the coast of Jacksonville, which was only about 30, 40 miles north of St. Augustine. So that really brought the war into everyone's front yard. And so citizens started using blackout curtains and the lighthouse actually reduced candle power so that it wouldn't be backlighting any ships that were close to shore and just making them targets for the submarines. hmm Wow. Yeah. Now, in June, another German submarine dropped four men carrying explosives just a few miles north at Ponte Vedra Beach. They were caught and executed within weeks, but after that, Coast Guard patrols on the beach were constant armed guards watched from the lighthouse 24 hours a day. And today you can still see the building that was the barracks for the Coast Guardsmen and a large shed that was built for their jeeps on the lighthouse property.
1: It's always interesting to see the way that the different wars made their stamp on significant historical like landmarks in our country. I know that's just reminded me of that book by Elizabeth Mooser. What's it called? Midnight Ride. No, that's not it.
0: I can't remember the title, but I remember that it did feature the Coast Guard patrol.
1: Yeah, it's by way of Moonlight by Elizabeth Musser.
0: Perfect, perfect. By 1970, the keeper's house was no longer in use. It was considered just excessive you didn't, when you didn't need to carry oil up the stairs to every two and a half hours. It wasn't really needed for the keeper to live that close. Mm -hmm. And actually, a fire destroyed the interior in 1970. And then in 1980, the lighthouse was nearly bulldozed to make way for development because it was just considered unnecessary. But the local Junior Service League fought to keep it operational. Vandals shot the frontal lens, broke 19 of its prisms. So in 1991, the light was replaced with an airport beacon. But the amazing thing is, in 1993... The restored original lens was once again lit in the lighthouse. I don't know how much money that cost exactly, but it was a big deal. They had a celebration and fireworks and everything when they relit the lens.
1: Wow. I'm so glad they were able to restore the actual lens.
0: I know. It weighs like two tons. It's a huge thing. And it dates back from the 1800s. So it's amazing. Today, the lighthouse and the restored Keeper's House operate as a nonprofit museum. The lighthouse's day mark, which identifies it during daylight for navigation purposes, is black and white stripes swirling up the tower with a red lantern on top. Its beacon sweeps in a 30 second rotation, still keeping watch over the St. Augustine waters.
3: Time for our bookworm review.
1: When the Nazis march towards Paris, American ballerina Lucy Girard buys her favorite English language bookstore to allow the Jewish owners to escape. The Germans make it difficult for her to keep Greenleaf books afloat, and she must keep the store open if she is to continue aiding the resistance by passing secret messages between the pages of her book. Widower Paul Aubrey wants nothing more than to return to the States with his little girl but the U.S. Army convinces him to keep his factory running and obtain military information from his German customers. As the war rages on, Paul offers his own resistance by sabotaging his product and hiding British airmen in his factory. But in order to carry out his mission, he must appear to support the occupation, which does not win him any sympathy when he meets Lucy in the bookstore. In a world turned upside down, will love or duty prevail? Today's Bookworm Review is brought to you by Alison Treat, an author and podcast host of Historical Fiction Unpacked. You can connect with her at allisontreat.com.
3: Until Leaves Fall in Paris was a lovely novel. Although the male protagonist, Paul, made an appearance in Sundin's previous book, When Twilight Breaks, this novel can be fully enjoyed on its own. Lucy's character was well-developed and delightful. Lucy felt that she wasn't smart, but she worked through these insecurities and learned to appreciate her strength. Paul's daughter, Josie, is a wonderful addition to the book. Paul doesn't recognize the intelligence and creativity in his own daughter. He's very business-minded, and he sometimes overlooks the beauty right in front of him. Josie writes and illustrates stories about a character named Feeney, who represents herself, Josephine, and she... fights against the rock monsters, which represent the Nazis. Paul doesn't understand the allegorical meaning of the stories. He thinks this is strange behavior, perhaps brought on by her motherless state. And he's embarrassed by it until Lucy shows him the brilliance his daughter is exhibiting. In her own way, this child is processing their lives in German-occupied Paris. I did not find any of the content offensive, but I'm not as conservative as some readers. Tobacco and alcohol are mentioned, as well as marital affairs. The romance between Paul and Lucy was brilliantly executed. If you'd like to read a World War II romance set in the midst of German-occupied Paris, with a bookstore based on Shakespeare and Company as the main feature, you will love Until Leaves Fall in Paris. Mix in the gripping suspense that naturally arises from these two Americans' involvement in the French resistance, and it's unputdownable. You've been listening to The Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets
0: fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.